0: Have you ever been given a trust? Had something entrusted to you, and uh, you sort of knew there was an expectation that you would keep it in good working order. Uh, when I was a kid, I started a little business, and my dad came alongside with me to help me start it. It was a lawn cutting business. So I lived. Wow! I lived in one of those uh, suburban. Uh, neighborhoods. And uh, we had lots of people who had a front lawn and a back lawn. And they just had too much grass that needed to be cut. So they gave me the opportunity to start working. So I had a lawnmower. And I would go and cut the grass and come back and revel in my $10. Like, wow! look, there's $10. And uh, that began to add up, and I was so excited. A few years went by, and I'm still cutting lawns, uh, enough so that I would throw the lawnmower into the back of the car, and I would drive to places and go cut the grass. And then one day, I'm cutting this lawn, and there's this, pow, this huge explosion. And then this, ball of smoke just emerges from the lawnmower. And I thought, uh uh-oh, that's not good. (laughs) And I grabbed the lawnmower and I pulled and I pulled and I pulled and nothing would happen. And I'm thinking, well, this is not good. And part of my thinking at the time was, i don't want to have to tell my dad about this, but I have lawns I need to cut in like two days, so I got the lawnmower home and checked. There was plenty of gas in there, so it wasn't out of gas. What has happened? My dad gets home late from work. I tell him um, your lawnmower isn't working, and he said, "Your lawnmower isn't working." <laughs> And so he came out and had a look, and then finally he said, when was the last time you checked the oil? And I said, oil? (laughs) It has to have oil? And I hadn't checked the oil in a couple years, and it just seized up, and that lawnmower was done. This is what it's like sometimes when we have to give an account for what we are stewards of. When we have to give an account of what has been entrusted to us. Sometimes a crisis emerges and then we check it. Other times we might get little warning signs. You know, we like it when there's a little warning sign on our car that says, check the oil, or you're about to run out of gas, or maybe the latest one is, it's time to plug in, recharge this car, this battery. And you could decide, I'm going to ignore all those signs, but ultimately, it will catch up with you. You and I live that same way in relation to our bodies our finances, our assignments, and even the people who have been entrusted to us. We can sometimes get into a pattern of life where we just quit paying attention to the signs that arrive that say, hey, consider how you're stewarding what has been entrusted to you. Jesus often told parables that were meant to be disturbing. I call them parables of crisis. There's no crisis yet, but there is a crisis coming. And Jesus wants to have a people prepared, or maybe even to avoid it, to avoid the crisis. Jesus wants to call people prepared into a kind of repentance that turns and avoids a crisis, that turns towards God as God and themselves as stewards. We're going to read one of those. This sometimes has been called by some people one of the most difficult parables of Jesus. I don't know. Let's have a read at it and see how this story meets us mark chapter 12 jesus then began to speak to them in parables a man planted a vineyard he put a wall around it dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place He sent many others, and some of them they beat, and others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. When Jesus starts this parable, it sounds like the story... Of landlord problems, you ever been a landlord? You ever had a room that you were renting out, and you were expecting to be able to collect the rent, and then they didn't pay the rent? What would you do? Oh, you don't know. you You don't have okay. You've been, the re- you've been the renter, <laughs> and someone's came looking for the rent, right? So Jesus' audience actually had two sets of listeners. One set of listeners were used to being renters, but there were a few people. How many of you have been renters? Yeah. There were a few people in that crowd among Jesus who were actually landlords. They had gotten to the place in their life where they actually had rooms to rent. They had fields and properties to rent. And in Jesus' story, those landlords would have immediately gone, Ah, oh, I know the problem. You won't believe the renter I had to finally run off last week. And they, they could commiserate with the problem. And and they felt like this story wasn't about them. This story was about you. All you renters. That this story was somehow about you. Until the moment where Jesus snaps. And the allegory becomes absurd. It's reasonable for this man who owns this vineyard to have wanted to collect rent. In fact, this didn't happen quickly. In Jewish law and expectation, when you planted a vineyard and the vines were new, you weren't actually to pull a harvest out of it until four years later. So there's quite a bit of time that's gone by all his listeners would have sort of understood that. This didn't happen quickly. This was time. There have been people living on the land and working the land, and now finally in the fourth year, there's a harvest. And so you needed to monetize the harvest and pay your rent. And so it was time. It was a very reasonable moment. And the landlord didn't come himself. He just sent a servant. The servant came. And what happened to the servant? Beaten, sent away, killed. Servants. One after another after another. And all of that might have sounded reasonable to renters who didn't want to pay rent, who thought the landlord was absentee. And had gone away. But then, Jesus snaps the story. And it becomes absurd. The story becomes absurd when the landlord thinks, I'm going to send my son. My beloved son. Surely they will respect him. Do any of you all expect in this story that really, Previous behavior indicates that they will respect the son? No. And so at this point, the story becomes very uncomfortable for the listeners. And then, the second point of absurdity. The tenants become absurd. Notice what the tenants say. Ah, you know, if we kill the sun, the place will be ours. Does that make sense? Is there any reasonable logic that makes that make sense? No. So there must be something going on with these particular tenants who think that way. That is foolish thinking. I had a friend named Stan who became a Christian. And I would ask Stan how he was doing. You know, he got baptized there, 65, 70 years old. And I would ask Stan, how are you doing? He said, you know, Craig, this week I've really been battling stinking thinking. <laughs> and he had started to recognize, you know, there were ways that of thinking that really were awful and had nothing to do with the truth and life of God and Christ. And he said, I got to get rid of the stinking thinking. But here we have tenants who have some stinking thinking. They're believing a lie. If we kill the son, the vineyard will be ours. They took him, killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. Then Jesus asks a question, and this is where the audience would have gone, "Ah, oh, what's going on? What then will the owner of the vineyard do? And then Jesus just gives another extreme answer. He will come and kill those tenants and then give the vineyard to others. This is an extreme parable. There was a realization in Jesus' questions. The teachers, chief priests, and chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders began to look for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. And so, who were they in the story? Were they the landlords? No. Were they the servants? No. Were they the son? No. They were the tenants? They were the renters? They were the renters. Now the story is different. And there was a shocking realization on the part of them. I am the steward. I am the foolish renter. And at that moment, they had a choice. They could choose to repent and say, no way, I don't want to be that kind of steward. But instead, they became angry and they became exactly that kind of steward. Jesus is brilliant, isn't he? He told a parable that some say set a trap. He's pushing back and challenging, but he's also inviting them into a response to the God who entrusts. To the God who loves. To the God who keeps warning, calling, sending people to them. So if God is the man who planted a vineyard, what are the clues that the teachers of the law and the elders and chief priests who are there, what clues alerted them Oh, maybe Jesus is up to something here. There are clues that you and I, in just reading this, would typically miss. The first clue is in the very first verse of the story. Did you get it? Let's read it together. You got it? You got your Bible? Let's read it together. A man planted Oh, wait, I don't hear you. You ready? A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. So that little line is right out of Isaiah chapter 5. We started our service today with this line about God who built a vineyard. He dug it up and cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. And so, who is the vineyard? The vineyard is actually somebody personified. The vineyard of God is Israel, for it tells us in verse 7 of Isaiah 5, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And so their first clue that, hmm, maybe Jesus isn't really um, just snuggling up to us, And getting cozy with us, you know, the power people here, by telling a renter and landlord horror story. Maybe Jesus is up to something else. Jesus might be the voice of God judging the leaders of Israel, the voice of God judging the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and the elders, and trying to call them back. That's clue number one. Jesus quotes Isaiah 5 and presents God as the one who judges the leaders of Israel. For in Isaiah 5, when God judges the Israel, leaders of Israel, it says he came looking for justice, but found bloodshed. He came looking for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So their leaders were actually hurting the people of Israel. Their trust had been people and the land. And they were proving they weren't worthy of it. The second thing, the second clue here is actually the absurdity. The claims of Jesus here is that God is sending his son. The owner of the vineyard is sending the son. Jesus has been making a claim about himself that he is the son of God. And they were really upset about this. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, he tells us that the whole gospel of Mark is about the Messiah, the son of God. Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. In the baptism of Jesus, Mark presents that God showed up and said, This is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased with him. And so the absurd claim here pushed them to begin to recognize, Wow, here's Jesus at it again? He's not claiming to just be a servant of God. He's not just claiming to be a prophet of God. He's saying he is the son of God. And then the third clue here is that Jesus actually claims victory. In the parable, Jesus breaks from the story. And then, he, re- he doesn't read it. He just quotes it because he knows it. He quotes Psalm 118. Did you notice those verses? Let's look at those in Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 10, he says, Haven't you read this passage? In other words, don't you know your scripture? And then Jesus quotes. Let's read it together from verse 10. Let's ask the question. You ready? Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. So, Psalm 118 Is a victory psalm. It's a song of the psalmist declaring victory over his enemies. But he declares in it something about the character and nature of God and God's relationship to Israel. So listen to this from Psalm 118. We read this text in our service this morning. Give thanks to to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. Ah, it's so awesome. And it goes right through this passage of the psalmist experiencing intense difficulty and yet experiencing God's deliverance, God's victory. In other words, the psalmist is saying, you rejected me, but God chose me anyway. So there's Jesus saying, to the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. You were entrusted with God's vineyard, Israel, and you have failed this nation. You have failed what was given and entrusted to you. And God has persisted so much in his love for you that he keeps coming and saying, come back to me. Change your ways. Give honor where honor is due. But now he has sent his son. And you've got stinking thinking. You're thinking. You're going to kill the son, and then this vineyard's just going to be yours. But it was never yours. It's only a trust. And though you reject me, I will be the very cornerstone that holds it all together. And so Jesus sings a victory song as the sun in the eye and the face of renters who were so absurd that they failed with their trust. This is a tough one, isn't it? Do you know inside of that, there's also something wonderful about Jesus and the Scripture. How many of you have sung the song, Here I raise my Ebenezer? Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. Anybody? Okay. It's a very old hymn, right? You didn't have to be old like me to know that one. <laughs> you just had to grow up at a church where they sing it. I mean, have you ever known anybody named Ebenezer? A few of you, yeah, a few of you know someone named Ebenezer. Oh, what kind of name is that? You know, that's like an old person's name, (laughs) Ebenezer. It's right out of the Scripture, where they were able to testify, God has been our strong help, and so we raise a stone, a marker here, to mark the day that God has been our help. The help is Ezer, the stone is Eben, Eben, right? Now you know. You didn't know, but now you know. And so, when Jesus says here, "the stone you rejected," he uses the word Eben. The Eben you rejected has been raised up, but Jesus is is also doing a little play on words, because you know what the word for son is? Ben. 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 So the son you have rejected, the stone you have rejected, he's doing a little word play here, where they should have been going, oh, these rabbis are so tricky. Snapped. it. He got them. Do you know, one of the fa- most famous stories, parables and allegories, is the story that Nathan told when he came to King David. David had murdered Uriah because David wanted there to be no evidence, no pointing fingers about his affair and rape, perhaps, of Bathsheba. He didn't want there to be any evidence of the wrongdoing. And so he killed her husband. And Nathan, the prophet, comes and tells a story to David. It was a shepherd kind of story. It was about a a treasured lamb that had become a pet. They had probably named the lamb, you know, bad thing. Don't name the pets you're going to eat. It had become a precious member of the family. And a rich man had a guest come and said, oh, go get, go get that guy's lamb and kill it. And David, when he heard the story, was so angry and, and said, that guy, he's going to have to pay back four times. And Nathan says, you're the man. snapped. He was caught in the story, caught in the trap, the prophetic trap of the story. This song really is about you. This story is really about you. And so David had a choice. He could rage or he could humble himself. He humbled himself. In this story, they had a choice. They could rage or they could humble themselves. Do you know, God is so persistent in trying to get us to humble ourselves before him when we've failed, when we've misused what we've been entrusted with, when we've neglected the trust. Whether it be the trust of the gospel, whether it be the trust of knowledge, whether it be the trust of relationships, whether it be the trust of a job, whether it be the trust of people you are responsible for leading in your work, in your home, in your neighborhood, in an organization you volunteer with, the Lord is always coming And that's why this story is so difficult, that with every reading of the story in the church, there's a group of people who say, this story is not about me. It's about them. But wait a while, and the next time you read it, you'll discover, I'm the man. I'm the woman. I'm the person in the story that God gave a trust to and I'm mishandling the trust. And he's inviting response. He's inviting repentance. Do you know, I think that that Jesus even invited Judas, who betrayed him, to refrain. And here Jesus is inviting the religious leaders to refrain from killing the son. Instead, to open their lives and live because of the Son. For this Son they reject shall be raised up. And this is our Easter moment. We are in the season of Easter, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. That with every reading of this, we realize that the grace of God is marvelous That the rejected one who was dragged outside the city and killed has been raised up and exalted. The humiliated one has been raised up and exalted for our benefit. What has God entrusted to you? If you're making a list, you should still be writing. What has God entrusted to you? What has God entrusted to us? Maybe some of you are coming back to that question and saying, well, God, have you really told me what you want? Did God tell Israel what he wanted? In Isaiah chapter 5, it goes on that God is looking at Israel and here's what he discovers. He discovers unrestrained domination of the land such that they keep pulling wealth together and pushing the poor out. He discovers that they have an unrestrained pursuit of pleasure. They're always thinking about when they can get the next drink rather than having regard for the ways of the Lord, and respect for the work of God. They have an unrestrained view of their own wisdom and supremacy. They keep saying, you know, God, if he wants to show up, he should get in a hurry. God should hurry up. In the meantime, I'm in charge. Wow. My neighbor who didn't seem to fear the law and was growing marijuana in his house right next to us when it was not legal, used to say to Ellen, they would talk about different kinds of people. And he's the best, one of the best neighbors we've ever had. I have to put that in. I would entrust my children to him, okay? (laughs) Um, He would say, oh yeah, Ellen, I, I can't spend time with those people. And she would say, well, why not? Because they have no fear of God. Ah, so interesting, right? We know that in Christ, Jesus has inhabited all of our relationships with God, with self, with people, and with the stuff of earth. And, and we know that now if he is Lord in our life, that then all of our relationships have been entrusted to us. It's not just ours, but it's something God has entrusted to us. This life becomes something entrusted to us, and then the way we live is an offering to God. It's meant to be a living sacrifice to God, but it begins with genuine worship and the gift of wisdom. Worship towards God and wisdom about our place in the world. And of wisdom, the scripture says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And this is the strange thing about this passage. The teachers of the law, the chief priests of the temple, and the elders who were present, Who did they fear the most at this moment? Did you notice? Did you notice that Mark actually tells us who they feared the most? They they knew Jesus had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Oh, therein is their mistake. The scripture says the fear of people will prove to be a snare. But you know what will bring freedom in our lives? The fear of God. A deep, abiding respect and love for God will cause us to cherish and treasure every gift he gives. And this is grace. This is grace that God sends reminders to us going, hey, hey, um, pay rent to God. What? Pay rent to God. Yeah, give honor where honor is due. Live your life in respect to him. You're You're letting all these people and this crowd take up space in your head, and you're paying rent to them. You're not supposed to pay rent to these people. But let the fear and respect and love of God be greater in your life and not fear of what everyone else is going to think. God has given us a trust. He's entrusted to you the gospel, the greatest story ever told. He's entrusted to you His Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence in you. He's entrusted to you His Word. Why, you have got the whole phone and a thousand translations available right here. He's entrusted to you the internet. Huh, did you ever think of that? The list goes on and on. He's entrusted to us to be stewards in the land. He's entrusted wealth to us. He's entrusted knowledge to us. And for some of you, there will be places and times in your life where you have to say, he has entrusted influence to me. Lord Jesus, help us. This parable is about us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in this parable, you are the God who creates. You are the God who entrusts. You are the God who expects. You are the God who entreats us to come to you again. And you are the God who does it again and again and again. Thank you for this grace. May we respond today by surrendering our lives and prick our conscience again, O Lord, that we might truly treasure the gifts you have given to us and steward them in your kingdom, in loving others, in including the poor and the outsider, in sharing our life and the gospel with others. We pray that your spirit would do your work in your church, in this campus, and in this city. Oh, God, forgive us for being such calloused, unthoughtful stewards. Forgive us at times for even being rebellious as stewards. We humble ourselves before you. And instead of rage, we pray that we might actually have joy. The joy of your salvation and grace. And we ask this in your name. Amen.